Welcome to Beer and Gear with Felix and Wes. Brought to you by Highway Marketing. So when did you start with with, with Sure? Um, I started in 1976. All right. Yep. Uh, what led you I, there? What were you doing before that? I have uh, I've got a degree in music from the University of Illinois. I, went, I was going to be a double E, going to be an electrical engineer, but I didn't like that. So I got a degree in music theory. And then when I graduated there, I worked at a guitar store for a couple of years, teaching guitar, repairing Fender amplifiers and things like that. And uh, the weird thing about a university town is that you get older and everybody else stays the same age. <laughs> it's I very live, strange. I live in Denton, which is where University of North Texas, the big, I guess the biggest jazz. Oh, yeah, world, man. You know? you, that so. was that was uh, I played for the University of Illinois Jazz Band and our biggest rival. Was North Texas, <laughs> yeah, North Texas State University back then. Yep, but yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I liked, I liked Urbana, but it was just strange because your friends move away and so forth, and you know, you just like I say, you get older. So I had sure cartridges. I had sure microphone. I'm always been in Illinois. I'm not, you know, sold. I'm sold in Illinois, but I've lived here all my life, and sure was in Illinois. And I thought it might be an interesting place to uh, work for. So I didn't even have, the, I didn't even look for a job there or anything. I literally showed up on their doorstep one day, went into the HR department and introduced myself. And I said, I think you're an interesting company. I'd like to know more about you. And, you know, and they were like, well, what job are you here for? I said, I'm not here for any job. I just want to know more about your company. They had no idea what to do with me. <laughs> so eventually they, they talked to one of the HR managers and said, could you come out and talk to this weird kid here? So I go into the guy's office and they've got some microphones in there and I identify all the mics. And I had done a little research on the company. So I knew the officer's names and so forth. After about 10 minutes, he says, boy, you seem to know an awful lot about this company. I said, yeah, I own your product. I use your product. He says, excuse me just a second. <laughs> so he goes out and he comes back and they said, well, we've got an opening in our sales department. Might you, you know, you might be interested in it. And that's how it started. <laughs> so it was just, you know, it, it was, it was literally me telling them you need to hire me. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it was, it wasn't like that, but that was what I was saying. And so I, it was within a week. Um, I took their IQ tests, which you had to do there. You had to talk to a, a psychologist, a management psychologist. And a week later, they offered me a job as a sales trainee to become a regional sales manager. So I started out as a regional sales manager in Texas was one of my territories hmm. way before you guys, there was a rep called Campion sales way back then. And they were in Richardson. Hmm. Yeah. So, Crazy. and I've, I've had um, five different careers there, five completely distinct separate careers, uh, almost like changing jobs, but without having to meet new people and without having to give up all your vacation benefits. <laughs> I find it interesting that there was a psychological uh, component to being yeah. hired. Um, yeah, right yeah. now they hire anybody. Look at Wes and I. I know, right? <laughs> no, you know, Mr. Sure started that in the 1940s. He was way ahead of his time. And he knew that, uh, I mean, managers, right? If, if people don't like their managers, he always said a thing, he said, people work for people, not for companies. Mm -hmm. which I think is an interesting thing. And so he decided that he wanted his managers to be well-adjusted. And, uh, and he had these psychological tests that started in the forties. So it was very common back then. And they still do it to, uh, with uh, people at certain levels. So, yeah. Hmm. 
so uh, so I felt right at home. So I, I had uh, the careers I've had. I was I was in regional sales manager for four or five years, and I wasn't very good at it. To tell you the truth, uh, I was a product manager for about ten years, where I I was a product manager for our mixer products, okay. uh, our automatic mixers, uh, our portable mixers, and so forth. I did advanced product research for a few years, just looking at technologies coming down the road and so forth. The thing I did the longest was application engineering. I started application engineering in 1993. We didn't have an apps department at the time. I just thought that would be something that would be good. Of course, that turned into a, a big thing for us and probably one of our biggest selling points. And then around 19, around 2016, uh, Gino Sigismondi, you probably know Gino, who was working for me. Mm -hmm. He was really ready to take over the department. I mean, he wasn't like trying to push me out, but I could see that if I didn't leave, he would get frustrated. And it's really important to know. It's like being on stage. It's really important to know you're not going to do one more song, <laughs> you know? And so I was thinking about going into semi-retirement, letting Gino take over applications and maybe working for him part-time. Uh, and that's when Mark Bruner came to me with the idea of uh, becoming the full-time corporate historian. And I was already prepared for that because Mrs. Schur and I wrote the 75th anniversary history book, that 400 volume, mm -hmm. page, 400 page book on the history of Schur. So I was like, yeah, I'm all over it. So, you know, pretty cool. Yeah, you can actually, I think, maybe see that right back here it? on my yeah, shelf yes, back yes. there. <laughs> yeah. Well, Wes, yeah. Wes how, how I survived that. Uh, uh, back up 1995, I write a memo, you know, I, that was for year 2000. I wrote a memo to Mrs. Sure. Dear Mrs. Sure, wouldn't it be nice if we had a 20 page pamphlet about the history of the company? <laughs> <laughs> That's how it started out. Scope creep. She and I worked on that together. Uh, and that was really what brought us close together. We became very close working on that. But there were so many people that says you're never gonna you're gonna be fired. We, we she'll, she'll fire you for this, and you know it wasn't the case. I mean, I always remembered one thing: it was her company, not mine. Mm -hmm. And and when we got into a disagreement about something, unless it was technically wrong, I would go with her. You know, for example, there's no mention of the first Mrs. Sure anywhere in that book. If I would write that book now, I would mention the first Mrs. Sure. She was the second Mrs. Sure, mm -hmm. but at the time. Am I going to fight that battle? No. <laughs> <laughs> no way. No way. Wow. So back to the book and the history. I'm always yeah. interested in seeing the, the... It feels like there are products in this industry that are supernovas, right? Like there is an SM58. There is a, a Fender Strat. Um, yep. I'm a bass player and I've... I personally think a precision bass was big. Yeah, of course, precision bass. Yeah, for 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 purposes of bands and music getting louder. Yeah, uh, it pushed the rest of the band to be able to get louder. Yep. Um, what are and and sure clearly has several supernovas, not only for the brand but for the industry. Yeah. Uh, and and I guess I'm curious to know what that first one was. What was that? Oh, that's easy. That was the Unidyne, 1939. Unidyne won the Model 55. That literally was a supernova. The other ones you've mentioned, the SM58, that took 10 years to take off. The SM7, which we'll probably talk more about, took 35 years to take off. But the Unidyne 1, the Model 55, the Elvis microphone, the Fat Boy, whatever you want to call it, that was an immediate hit. That, was, uh, that came out in April of 1939. And if you look at photos from World War II, you see that microphone all around the world for radio. There wasn't television then. 
um, for public address and so forth. So that really was the biggest supernova. And I would say this, if we hadn't brought out the Unidyne one, we wouldn't have had the two, we wouldn't have had the three. I'm not sure, certain, sure would be this company it is now if we hadn't had that. So that was the first really big hit that we had. And probably never, you know, very seriously, I don't think there's been anything like it since that took off that quickly. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me as a live sound guy to think about how long it took and the whole history, which, you know, I would like to hear, a, I know a little bit of it, but people listening to this or watching this might not know, but I would, <laughs> I would love for you to talk a little bit about the, the SM58 and how long it took oh, yeah. before people really used it. A couple of people did here and there, but you know, the, I know that most people know that SM studio microphone, like yep. that was kind of the, where that comes from, but talk a little bit about like that, that process. Cause we all just think of it as always being you're right. There. Exactly. You always say, Oh, it's always a hit. No, it wasn't the case. So you're right. SM stood for studio microphone. A uh, little background on that. There's a guy named Bob Carr and Bob Carr worked for sure in the early 1960s. In fact, he was there when I started. Bob was really a mentor to me. But we were making money hand over fist with phonograph cartridges in the 60s. And microphones were second. They were, they were there and they were secondary really at that time. Because phono cartridges you could build for $5 and sell it for $50. Yeah, let's, let's do lots of those. Uh, but Bob Carr was tasked as a one-man department to come up with microphones for studios, radio, TV, motion pictures, because at the time, Electro Voice and AKG and RCA, they were the prominent players in that. So he really didn't have budget to create new microphones, so he decided to take existing microphones and paint them like a dark gray color and take the switches off and put XLR connectors on them and so forth and make them professional, even though there was nothing different about the engines inside the microphones. So he took the Model 545, which was the Unidyne 3, that's the grandchild of the Unidyne 1, which was, and the Unidyne 3 was introduced in 1959. And from that, he made the SM57. 57 came out in 1965. That was a modest hit. The only thing that really took off directly from that one was the White House Communications Agency started using that microphone on Lyndon Johnson in 1966. So it was a big hit for that, but it wasn't a big hit for snare drums and guitar amps and so forth. A year later, they put a ball on it. That was the SM58. That was 1966. And again, we're trying to sell it to radio and TV people. In fact, if you look at the first SM58 printed ad, it's all about television. You know, it doesn't mention live sound, doesn't mention rock and roll, doesn't mention any of the things that we think about it. So around 1970, the vice president of the sales calls Bob Carr into the office and basically says, you know, none of these SM mics are making anywhere near your forecast. I think we should discontinue them. <laughs> so they were seriously thinking about discontinuing the entire SM line around 1970. A guy named Roger Ponto was the national sales manager at the time. In fact, he's the guy that hired me to go to work for sure. And he said, well, before we give up on that, I've got lots of contacts at uh, Las Vegas let me take them out there and see if these SM microphones, SM58s particularly, work well for live sound. Because Vegas was growing, there was a lot of live shows and so forth, and sure enough, it did. Just to give you an idea, Wes, total sales for the SM58 for the first year, 145 units. 
Wow. I think I've owned more SM58s in my life than that. Exactly. There, there are rental houses that have more than that. And, and we didn't hit 1,000 per year till almost 1975, maybe, I would guess. It's just mind-blowing to me. Yeah. You know, that the industry standard took that long to even yep. really be used. Yep. Yep. And it just, it really took a long time to, to, to ramp up. Now, you know, there are a lot, a lot of different things. Um, number one, a lot of bands back then, particularly smaller bands, they were using high impedance mics, plugging it into the guitar amp. So they were quarter inch plugs and so forth. Uh, and, you know, pro sound, like we think of concert sound, that was just, that was just starting. I mean, Woodstock 69, that was one really, one of the very first really big, concerts like we think of today those were all model 565s which are of course the chrome versions of the s58s but you look at those really carefully and they've got a little adapter on the end of it which connect we went from amphenol to xlr right you know so yeah so the 58 now i mean i think any other microphone company would probably trade their entire line just to have the s58 <laughs> sales but it was not a hit until at least 10 years in it and then started to ramp up I would say it started to become an industry standard uh, in the 80s, really. So that was almost, you know, 15, 20 years after it came out. Yeah, that's that's crazy to think about. But you're right. You know, most of those, uh, most of what we think of as production companies, you know, the big ones, Claire's and all that stuff, you know, they started late 60s, early 70s, you know. So prior to that, there was really not a live sound industry. So do, do you remember the name Shoko? Oh, yeah. I, I, I've lived in Dallas for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Shoko was the company that basically forced, quote unquote, Sure into making the Unidyne 4. Most people don't know what the Unidyne 4 is. It's a model 548. Mm-hmm. And it's basically an SM57 with but chrome and black, but with a grill on it that you can't, it's metal. You can't dent it. And see, and and Shoko's like the fifty sevens. They were early adopters of, but they didn't like the plastic head that it rotated and you could mm-hmm. kick it off. So we bring out this Unidyne four, and for me it was a mystery for a long time. In fact, it's a mystery I just solved about a, a year and a half ago. Unidyne one to Unidyne two was a big change. Unidyne three was a big change. So I'm thinking Unidyne four. Man, what do we do? What do we change inside? You know. And so I literally went to the archive, took one apart, and I'm going. God, it looks like a Unidyne 3 to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. and I, then I went to the microphone engineers, and, and we took it apart. We go, this is a Unidyne 3. <laughs> and so all we did was put a different grill on it, but someone, and I can tell you, I, I can guess who it was, is our, our marketing manager, or our advertising manager at the time, goes, no, let's call it a Unidyne 4 and, and make it a big deal. Well, we should have never done that. It should have been a Unidyne 3 with a new grill like that. Mm-hmm. But Shoko was who really loved that microphone because they used it on Paul McCartney and Wings. They used it for miking the drums on Led Zeppelin. Uh, it's a very distinctive looking mic, uh, but it was a, never really a big hit. Uh, I think probably because it was a little more expensive. Also, the aspect of is that if you happen to hit that metal grill with your drumstick, you go, bing! <laughs> Just, mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not cool. <laughs> but but, but Shoko is a big user of that. And and you see them in all these 1970s concert photos. Every time I see a 548, which is the Unidyne 4, I go, ah, Shoko. Yeah. And sure enough, it was. 
Yeah, they were uh, they were one of the big, the really big players in the '70s for sure. Yeah, you know, I I love the history of audio. Uh, that's why I love talking to you because <laughs> you're a wealth of knowledge. That's fantastic. Uh, so um, you had said something earlier, uh, and you kind of referenced this a couple of times, but the SM7B, which yeah. is obviously uh, you know in front of Felix's face right now. <laughs> um, you know, this is a uh, and and I know from my recording days, you know, I I've owned a 7B for years. I have an SM7 actually. Right. Um, so uh, I've, I've had it for years. Can you kind of talk about, uh, cause you had said earlier that that was almost discontinued. Yep. So that the first SM7, there's been the SM7, SM7A and SM7B. The internal guts of it are pretty much the same. SM7 came out in 1972, introduced it at the end of 1972, sold the first ones in 1973. And we, from the beginning, we were, trying to go after the voiceover market for that radio and, and TV voiceover. Uh, again, slow mover. It just never really did much. I mean, it, you know, there were some radio stations that took it on. Uh, the DJ Wolfman Jack, who was really big in the 70s and 80s, he used it. He was an uh, endorser of ours. Um, I only found out recently that the uh, Stones have used it for me. Uh, most of Mick Jagger's vocals on the records are SM7s. Now, they never told me oh, about wow. that, but they would record him with a Neumann and an SM7, and then whatever one worked better in the mix, they would use that. Mm -hmm. So I've got some early photos of like Jagger in the studios in like 77, 78 using the SM7. And of course, Michael Jackson used it for the Thriller album. Um, but it was never a huge seller. It was always kind of there. It was, it, it was like the really good utility player on a baseball team. You don't want to trade him away because, you know, he's, he gets a few hits and so forth, and he doesn't cost you very much. So from 1973 to 2008, 35 years, it's so, it was average selling. I can't tell you the numbers that it fired me, but it was an average selling microphone, but not, not even close to what a 57 or 58 would sell so forth. And then in 2008, podcasters somehow got onto this microphone. Maybe they saw them being used in radio studios, who knows why, but they start telling each other, right? And the, and the sales start to ramp up, start to ramp up. And then gamers get onto it around 2015. And, and you know, and I'm, I'm not a gamer myself. I'm a completely different generation, but the fact that people would pay that much for a microphone to use for gaming online whatever. <laughs> and 2020 calendar, 2020 biggest sales year ever for the SM seven. And just to give you an idea, I can't give you numbers, but I can give you ratios. If you look at sales in 2020 versus sales in the year 2000, 100 times greater. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the SM seven would be a really nice microphone company all by itself. <laughs> hmm. So it's funny, I, I was driving last year at some point listening to a podcast and the interviewer, this interviewer a musician and um, high profile mus musician, I forgot who, and they're talking about microphones. It's like, yeah, yeah, I love this microphone. Uh, you have it in the studio? I was like, no, not really. You should check it out, man. It's an SM7B. And I'm driving. I'm like, no, 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 no. They're back order already. Man. Like, I can't, I can't. Don't make my life harder than it is right now. <laughs> well, you know, the... The, the changes, we, we made the change to the SM7A in 1999. The only difference there was we put it in a better humbucking coil. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and that's because radio studios started using CRT monitors, which were close to the microphones, and then the microphones were hum and buzz. So we changed the, the hum up coil. And then two years later, we made it the B, and all the B was was adding the fat windscreen. And the reason we did that was there was a mic we had called the SM5. Uh, SM5 was introduced in 1964 and was discontinued in 1988. It looks like a big nerf, big nerf mm -hmm. football. But there are radio stations that thought that was the best on-air microphone ever made, even though we never sold more than about 300 in a year. It was really a bad-selling microphone. But these radio stations were so loyal to this that I would go to NAB every year. We had discontinued it 10 years ago, and five guys would come and beat me up. You guys need to bring that back. That was the best microphone ever like that. So one day we were having a brainstorming meeting at Sure, and someone said, I wonder if we made the SM7 look like the SM5, it would sell better. <laughs> and that's all we did. We made the SM7 look like the SM5 by adding that big fat windscreen on it. And these guys loved it. And, wow. and so. I wonder if know. it was only 150 radio stations that were buying two per. Well, well, exactly. And, one, and once they bought them, you know, radio stations don't ruin microphones, right? On-air microphones, they don't get ruined. So they, once they had their supply of them, they didn't need any more. So that's why the SM7B has that larger windscreen. It was made to look like the SM5. So <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, my my SM7 has more of a kind of ball kind of right. thing. It's not long and pointy. Right. Like, because you because you get yeah. both you get both of them now. When you buy it, you get the, the long and pointy one, which is the original one, and then you get the the more bulbous one, which is the one that looks like the SM5. Yeah. So that was it. I mean, it gives you a little bit better pop protection, so we can always say that. But the primary reason was to get these guys off our case. That <laughs> said, bring back the SM5. No, we're not going to do that. But we'll give you a windscreen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll give you a windscreen that looks like it. So it, it's it's amazing. And our and our you know our poor production people. I mean, no one could have predicted this ramp up. The whole COVID thing really, really drove it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and no one could have predicted it. So, you know, you go, you go back to suppliers who have been making, well, first of all, we had tooling that started to wear out. We had tooling that we built to make this microphone in the seventies, right? Now, all of a sudden you're saying, well, we're going to make, use that tool 50 times more every week than we did before. So we had to have new tooling built because that was wearing out. And we had to go back to suppliers that had got used to supplying a thousand of something or 2000 something and go, Hey, can you give us 50,000 instead? And they're going, what? You know, so there's a whole chain of things that happen to have to keep up with demand. I mean, I think we've done a, yes, there's back order, but I think in general, we've done a pretty darn good job of it, considering it was completely unpredictable. I think, I don't know where Wes is at, but I have dealers that were doing, taking them two months to sell what they were doing in a year in SM7Bs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely an MV7 just picked up the ball from that and kept going. It it, it seems like yeah, when it came yeah. out, it just it, 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 it was selling at that speed as well. Yeah, um, the, at least for my what I see, you know. Yeah, the, the the forecast on that's been doubled and doubled and doubled again and so forth. And you know what's interesting about this too is also um, sure has always done really well by not boasting about what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not thinking, look at this microphone, aren't we great? And stuff like that. You just kind of lay back and just kind of be, be prideful, but not boastful. And people will find their way to you. 
you know, I don't think we have to tell anybody what an SM7B is. Uh, you know, just people understand that. So uh, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, that's uh, it sure seems like they've always been that kind of company that, you know, they put out a good product and they put it out in the market and people find it. You yeah. know, I mean, obviously there's advertising and all that. I mean, you know, as, as any company will do, but, you know, they they let it find its its niche in the market. Well, you know? what's funny about think about this. So we, we talked about the SM58 that was aimed for radio and TV ends up being a, a great live sound microphone. We bring out the SM7 that was aimed for radio and TV voiceover. It turns out to be a great podcasting microphone. There's probably at least five or six others that I've told that I could talk to you about that we brought out for A, and then the world says, oh, no, this is really what it is. I'll, cool. I'll give you one personal one, which is because I was involved in it. So I'm there 1978 or so, still wet behind the ears, young guy, and we were made a microphone called an SM10. That's our headset microphone. We still make that one. Mm -hmm. That came out in the early 1970s. And we were trying to sell that to radio or television studios for intercom from camera to camera. That's what we're going after. And it didn't do very well. So I went to a concert and I can't remember where it was, but it was the Doobie Brothers. And I remember that I was close enough where I could see something. I said, well, that's weird. And the drummer was wearing an SM10 and using it for his vocals. And, and the light bulb goes on. I said, oh, God, that's brilliant. You know, he doesn't have a stand in his way. It's noise canceling no matter where he turns his head. And head-worn microphones for musicians were unknown there. So I just, I, I was so excited. I went back to Sure the next Monday, wrote a memo to the vice president of sales saying, we got to promote this, we got to promote this. I'm called into his office and he says, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard in my life. I said, no, no, no. It's really great. Just think about this. Of course, he wasn't a musician, right? So I got pushed aside. But I just knew this was a great idea. And so I wouldn't give up. And I just nagged and nagged and nagged and nagged. About a year later, we did one ad. And it was singing, drummer. And it was resolved. My, a microphone should not stand in the way of your music. And it talked about everything that we take for granted now for head-worn mics. And within a year, those sales have went up by a factor of 10. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I invented the head-worn microphone. I didn't, but I know a good idea <laughs> when I see it. <laughs> and so that was a case of we brought this microphone out for this, and here it is now, 50 years later, we still make the SM10, and it still sells well. But now it's a microphone for singing musicians, but that wasn't what it was brought out for. Well, and even earlier when we were talking about supernovas, you talked about Unidyne. Yeah. And you, you referred to it as the Elvis mic. Yeah. But then you went back to 1936, oh, 39. 39, yeah. So that, that was, that, that, that predated Elvis by, by a few decades. So. Okay, well, the tech in, in the 30s, it's kind of hard to think about this, but technologies that were emerging in the 30s that were brand new were like public address systems in clubs. That was new. And of course, mm -hmm. you can imagine a unidirectional microphone would help you for that. Uh, Two-way radio was relatively new, and the unidirectional microphone helps you with that if it's a noisy environment. So there were all of these things that were that were coming up as new technologies that a unidirectional microphone just really helped with. Mm -hmm. So we were at the right place at the right time with a microphone that was very reasonably cost because before the Unidyne came out, to make a cardioid microphone, you had to have a two-element mic. 
it was a mic with a bi-directional and an omni in it, and then you would combine them electronically to give you that cardioid pattern. Well, now you're paying for two mics to get one pattern. So the Unidyne was really a big breakthrough because it gave you a cardioid in a moving coil, dynamic, single element microphone. And all these other technologies happened to be there just waiting to use it. So right place, right time. What was trade price on something like that? Could a musician at that point uh, get it? Or Well, uh, should I give it to you? I'll give it to you in 2021 dollars. It was about 850 bucks. Yeah. Now it was $45 back then. You think, wow, what a bargain, but you have to translate. So yeah, yeah. it was not, it was not an inexpensive microphone. It was over $800, but people were, you know, were pony up for that. When world war II came around and sure started, you know, sure was drafted, if you will, into making headphones and microphones for the military. And the government said, and there are certain consumer products you can make and certain consumer products you can't make. Well, the, the Unidyne one was one that we had to make. The government says you have to make that because we need that to do for uh, bond drives. And we need that for people, for the president addressing the nation. And we need that for generals going out and addressing the troops and so forth. So that was one of the few consumer products that sure was allowed to make during World War II because it had a lot of military applications. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's crazy to think about that yeah. being conscripted, basically. Yeah. So, Sure did a lot of the, like the, the throat mics for aviation, that kind mm -hmm. of thing, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, throat mic, uh, you know, they're, they're basically carbon microphones that you press up against your throat and then they pick up the vibrations. And that's because the um, fighter pilot cockpits were so noisy that if you used a regular microphone, it'd be, you know, the voice would be drowned out. So they used the vibrations of the throat to do that. We made um, carbon microphones for use in tanks um headphones we made we actually made the drivers that go, went into the headphones as well um we made some very special microphones that went into oxygen masks for uh, high for pilots when they're flying real high but that's where we got into making products that were durable and reliable because they had to meet military standards and so we had to really up our game as far as the manufacturing of these products so that they were you know they would remain reliable uh, Mr. Schur said, if that microphone fails, we might lose a ship. We might use, lose a plane full of, of, of soldiers. So we started making our microphones much higher quality. And when the war ended, Mr. Schur says, hmm, you know, this, this military spec stuff, it costs us more up front, but on the back end, it pays off because you have fewer returns and people like the reliability of it. So he made the decision that, okay, from now on, war ends, we're going to build consumer products to military specifications. And that was a big change. And of course, we've never changed away from that. And that's that's the one thing you guys have been selling our products for a while. No one ever says that we make unreliable products. Right. They, may, they may other things, but reliability and durability, that's the first thing out of their mouths. And that goes all the way back to the World War II ideas. And Mr. Schur. So... <clears throat> Talk a little bit, I, having been uh, too sure um, and being the nerd that I am, uh, <laughs> I'm super fascinated by a couple of things, but you probably know a little bit more about this. Talk about the the museum and yep. like what's in there. Because to me, the fact that that every single thing Shore has ever made, the, the plans are in that part of the building and you can, you know, so so people can go back and look at that's fascinating. So yeah. talk a little bit about that. 
Well, we have an archive. <clears throat> there is in the archive at least one example of every major product that we've done. We haven't done all the, you know, we don't have every last cable. We don't have every last accessory. They just would be ridiculous on that. Uh, as far as the engineering drawings, those um, are kind of in hindsight. So we can't keep those good. We've been business for 96 years. If we kept every engineering drawing, we'd have to have <laughs> five buildings yeah. for that. But we do try to keep the drawings of the really major products. Uh, but even even just recently, there was, was, when was this? This is about two weeks ago. Um, there was a box from offsite storage. We have 500 boxes in offsite storage that haven't been looked at in 60 years. Wow. <laughs> and we're paying to store them. So we have the financial people saying, do we really need to keep those boxes? And they got me saying, we're not going to throw out any of those boxes without looking at them. Right. So you, you got this fight between the, you know, the, the bean counters and then the pack rat here. <laughs> so um, with COVID and so forth, we can't go out there. So we basically, we had one box delivered that looked interesting and I opened it up in the box. It's a baker's box, right? So in the, in the stuff to that. So maybe there's, maybe there's a thousand documents in there. I don't even know. So I start going through those nah, boring, boring, boring. And all of a sudden I come across the original hand drawing of the throat microphone from World War II. Oh, that's cool. Right. And then, and then I run across the original hand drawing of the drivers for the headphones. And I also ran in that same box, the original hand drawing for the casing of the Unidyne one microphone from 1939. Oh, wow. So we're still finding this stuff. You know, it's, there's just so much out there. The trick is that you have to have someone with enough history at sure to be able to know what they're looking at. And, and that's, that's the value that, that I add to go, I can look at it, nah, nah, this isn't important, or this product never went anywhere. Oh, now this, on the other hand, it was like when I discovered the, um, the Ben Bauer lab notebooks. Ben Bauer was the most important engineer that ever worked at Sure. He created the Unidyne One, and by the time he had worked for Sure for 20 years, he had like 60 patents with us. And when you're an engineer, you always have to keep what's called a lab notebook so that if you come up with an idea that is a patented later, you have the proof. Yes, on this date, I, I created this. The, the Bauer notebooks from 1936 to 1944 were nowhere to be found. And we don't know what happened to them. And those are really important because he did so much critical work in those times. And he was 24 to 34 years old at the time. So this was five years ago now. But uh, Julie, who are as archivist, and I'm the historian, we went out to the offsite storage and we pulled eight dusty boxes at random. And I said, well, it looks like no, no one's looked at this one for a while. And the second one we took off the shelf had the Bowers notebooks in them. Two volumes, 400 pages, all of his hand drawings, all of his notes, including the first day he came up with the idea for the Unidyne. Man, it was like looking through Einstein's papers. It was just thrilling. And this guy had a new idea every freaking day. I mean, you know, it, it just, it puts you in awe of people like that. You just go, man, I, you know, I think I'm smart. No, not, <laughs> I'm not smart. So uh, a sidebar of that I got to know, I got to uh, meet and know pretty good, become pretty good friends with Bauer's sons. Now his sons are in their late seventies and early eighties. One's a dentist, one's a psychiatrist. And they came to Shure for the ceremony we had about Ben Bauer and a few other things. 
So I said, let's do an oral interview. We'll sit down and we'll talk about growing up with dad, growing up with a genius, right? You know, and it was a great, it was a great two hours. And I, and I said, I got to ask you guys something. So your dad was born in the Ukraine, lived in Poland, lived in England, lived in Havana, Cuba, comes to the United States at age 16 to go to college and teach himself English at the same time, right? Not only go to college, but I'm going to have to learn English like that. I said, and yet I find his memos from 1937, and his English is absolutely perfect. His written English is absolutely perfect. I said, so he spoke Russian, some French, which apparently he learned from a a nanny, um, English, Spanish. I I said, how could that be? (laughs) One of the sons says, dad was kind of (laughs) smart. That's anyway, you know, yep, yep, he was kind of smart. So, so I'm real thrilled that we got like hundreds of more boxes out there to, to go through. I, I don't know what I'm going to find in them, you know. Um, but it, it, you mentioned it was a museum. On the first floor at Sure, we have a, a mini museum we just call the Great Hall, and that's where we kind of pulled some of the really cool things. And they're in a museum type setting. And, and when it's not COVID, we can take people through. That's the first place we go through. And that was the last project that Mrs. Schur and I worked on together. And she, she's very proud of that. Uh, but that shows you like one hundredth of one percent of what we've got. And then back in the archives is where all the cool stuff is like, uh, you know, our first wireless microphone, the Vagabond and our first uh, AM radio trans or AM radio modulator and things. And that's just really fun. I'm on eBay all the time looking for stuff. And now I've got a small group of about 15 microphone collectors around the world that we all know each other. And they're always on the lookout for stuff for me as well. And typically because I help them out when I can, when something really cool comes in, I usually get first crack at it. Um, The only thing I'm looking for right now is we made this way, way cool art deco mic stand in the 1930s. That was for our condenser mic. And you put the condenser mic on top and underneath he hid the power supply. And the bottom of the, the bottom of this mic stand looks like the empire state building. Oh, wow. It is so freaking cool. (laughs) I know where two of them are and neither one of them is for sale. (laughs) (laughs) And I've tried, you know, Hey, can I trade you some stuff? Uh, You know, (laughs) no, 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 no. Like that. So, it's it's a great thing, and you know, to to have the honor just to be able to go back there and scan my badge. Um, I tell you what, I did Wes. Every now and then, I just go, you know, if I'm tired of writing, or I just go back there and look. Mm-hmm. And it was about a year and a half ago. I went back one day, at random, pulled a box off the shelf. I recognized the the, the person's name on the box. They have collections, so when I retire, there'll be a Michael Pedersen collection, which is all the stuff I've collected over my years, but. Pull this one off there, and you know, and I it was a woman that worked there, and I didn't expect to find anything interesting. And I'm looking through there, and I was right, there wasn't anything interesting. I was like, wait a minute, what's this? And it's a film canister, and it was a 16 millimeter film in there from 1943, silent film, and it's showing the manufacturing of our military mics. Whoa, oh, wow, nobody knew this existed. And it was, it, the film was in pristine condition. And I took it to a local place and we digitized it. And now we have this 15 minute film showing the actual production line of us building these military mics in 1943. So, wow. and you know, I didn't know, I didn't know that film canister was back there. There's, there's just, there's too much stuff to know. 
So it's really, it's a really a fun treasure hunt just to go back and say, Hey, what's in this box? You know? <laughs> and sometimes you get nothing. And other times you, you, other times you get that 1943 film. That's cool. Yeah. So one of the other big changes that, you know, actually I, I vaguely remember happening, uh, because I'm, I'm old, but is, is the transition to wireless microphones. Mm, you know, yep. like I remember coming up when I was a teenager, you know, only like the really big bands had wireless microphones and any wireless microphones that anybody at a medium or lower level could get were garbage. Yep. And, you know, you just couldn't use them very well. They weren't, they weren't reliable. Yep, and now right, fast right. forward to now, I mean, everybody can afford incredibly intelligent wireless technology yeah that changed is, with it. yeah, yeah it, it's gotten so good that people just think it's a magic stick you know right. like you just turn it on <laughs> and in most cases it is you know right. you just turn it on and it works right you know yeah so can you talk a little bit about you mentioned the vagabond being yep. the first one can you talk a little bit about that yeah so um 1947 ben bauer mentioned him before writes a, writes a memo to mr sure and says i've got this idea i think i've got a way to get rid of the cable between the microphone and the amplifier. And I don't know if I don't know if we can put if I don't know if we can put the circuitry in the microphone itself or if we should put it in the microphone stand. I don't know. So that so he pauses the idea of a wireless microphone. Um, and here's the interesting thing I just found out. People say, well, there are wires in it. Why do they call it a wireless microphone? Well, the first microphone that was built that used radio to transmit was built in the UK. And in England, they call radio the wireless. Yes. And that's yeah. why it's a wireless microphone, because it was first invented in the UK. And it was here, we would probably call it the radio microphone. It was here. So it was, right. it stuck. So that's 1947. So fast forward, now it's 1953. And sure is working on this. And we bring out the Vagabond. That was the world's first wireless microphone system <clears throat> where the microphone and the transmitter were in one piece. So it was a handheld transmitter. This is pre-transistors. That transmitter's got five vacuum tubes inside of it, miniature wow. vacuum tubes, and a 30-volt battery and also a one-and-a-half-volt battery inside of it. Didn't transmit very far, maybe 20, 30 feet, but it got rid of that 20 30, or 30 feet of cable. Um, in today's dollars, a single-channel system was like $7,000. <laughs> yeah. Early Axiant, right? I was going to say, that's Axiant pricing right yeah, there. <laughs> except just one mic and one receiver. But you've got a handheld transmitter. People are going to drop it, right? And you got five vacuum tubes inside of it. So you can imagine that the reliability of it was not great. So we sold it from 53 to 1960. Primary people that bought it, churches with had a lot of money, bought them. Um, a small town in Nevada called Las Vegas bought a few... <clears throat> And TV was new, too, and they bought a few as well. But it just didn't do very well. So around 1960, Schur decides to discontinue it. And allegedly, Mr. Schur said, when we can make a wireless microphone that's as reliable as a wired microphone, we'll get back into the business. And besides the fact, we were making so much money off of hi-fi cartridges then that this stuff was not, they weren't paying much attention to it. So 1960s, we don't do anything. 1970s, wireless microphone manufacturers start to grow. Not sure. What do they want to put on their wireless microphones? SM58 heads. So sure starts a little OEM business where we're selling SM58 heads to these small wireless microphone manufacturers. Uh, Vega, Swintech, Edcore, 
HME. These are some of the names that we do that. And hey, nice business, right? You know, we're not paying much attention to it. Early 1980s, someone uh, takes a look and says, damn, we're selling a lot of SM58 heads to these wireless microphone manufacturers. And one person says, yeah, isn't it a great business? And another person says, you realize for each one of those, we're not selling a system, right? <laughs> and so we better get into this business. So in 1986, we brought out our first modern wireless system, but it was a hybrid. It was a, it was a um, partnership between Sure and Telex. And Telex made the receivers, and Telex made the body pack transmitter, and we made the handheld transmitter. And it was called the Sure Wireless, and it was a joint thing. Of, it was marketed under Sure, but Telex made the part of it. So that got us back into the business. But the other thing it did was someone made the really wise decision. This was a painful short-term decision, but we stopped selling SM58 heads to these other makers. And they screamed bloody murder because, of course, that was it. But you know, we, that, that's like giving away your best thing, right? You know, I mean, if, so if you wanted an SM58, you had to come to shore. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a 1986, 87 approximately. UHF, VHF, single frequency system. And it was back then $3,000. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we did the, we did the joint Sure Telex thing for a while. And then we introduced the first Sure only, Sure manufactured, Sure designed around 1990. It was called the L series. It was originally going to be called the Liberty series. But right before we were going to bring it out, someone said, uh oh. Someone else, somebody's got the ter term liberty. They're always using it. So we had to come up with something else. So we just dropped everything else but the L and stuck with L. And of course, now we're stuck with that LX, SLX, ULX, ULXD. <laughs> oh, wow. <clears throat> wow. You know. So was it the LX or just the L? L, just L. Okay. L series. LX was the replacement. Okay. And even that, we started calling it LX just because that was like the, the project name. Right, we didn't know what else to call it. it was L something or other, right? And then it just sticks. <laughs> you know, because yeah, so, I remember the LX. That was right when I first started kind of seeing a little bit of that, that right. out and about. You know? Yeah. So that was the second sure design system. But you know, you, you get all this stuff that you, you come up with. It just happens. You know, you just start. You have to call it something when you're working on it, mm -hmm. and then everybody starts to call it that, and then it gets it gets stuck. I mean, you know, our first UHF system was the UHF system. <laughs> You know, and then that became UR, UHFR replacement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> UHFR is UHF replacement. Yes. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just this all the silly stuff, you know. And it was like someone told me, said, oh, man, 58. What a, how'd you come up with that number? It was such a great number. I said, well, we had a 55, then we had a 56, then we had a 57, and 58 was the next number. <laughs> <laughs> it's a logical thing. Yeah, exa exactly. And we had a 59 and a 60 and a 61 and a 62 and a 63. And, you know, it just, it just like that. It just, I mean, if it had been a, it had been a 59, it'd be, you know, if it's the same unit and it was called a 59, it would be just success successful. So it's hindsight looking back. Ah, oh, 58, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> it just was. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, that the, the whole wireless thing has always kind of, 
we, we all in the industry, we all kind of joke around that, you know, for every one cable you get rid of, it takes three more to, to make it function. <laughs> is you know? that the truth? <laughs> yeah. Is so, that the truth? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, I mean, wireless technology is really kind of brought that to a lot more people in the, the, again, the magic box thing, it's gotten so much better and so much better. And so much is happening behind the scenes that, you know, sure has really kind of driven that, yeah, that market of, of being, you know, everything happens cool. with the push of a button and then you're well, done. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was working in, in application engineering, we used to always have this joke about um, the post spring vacation, and what would happen was this is this was you could just count upon this <clears throat> when everyone was traveling, right? So it's spring vacation, and all the drama teachers go to New York to go to the theater, and they come back and they're so excited they're going to put on Les Mis with their kids and they're going to put on Cats with their kids and so like that. And they call up Sure, and they say, "Hey, you know we're going to do this and we need forty wireless microphones and what's it going to cost?" <laughs> $150,000 <laughs> just here it goes silent <laughs> at the other end because Broadway theater, they make it look so easy. Oh yeah. And the people that are out there in the seats have got no clue about how much complication is going on behind the scenes. And it, it, it was always drama teachers, always, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, churches, sometimes the churches also would, we suffer from that, but uh, you know, you know, we're fortunate to have gotten into wireless, when we did, and also really fortunate because being a private company, you can make investments that take you five, six, seven years to pay off. Axiant took a long time to develop. And if we had been a public company, you would have had the stockholders saying, you've been working on this stuff for a year. Where's our profits? And, and when you do that stuff, a lot of times you don't get very good products or they're or they last for six months and you have to replace them a la Apple. I mean, I, I have respect for Apple, but I think that their whole thing of that, you got to replace our products every year and they fall apart. Like, it's just disgusting. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we make products that you can go into the archive and pull out products, sure products that are 40, 50 years old and they still work. Mm -hmm. And I think that really says a lot. Uh, it does curse me though, because when I have something in my house that breaks after 25 years, I'm ticked off. <laughs> <laughs> My, 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 my microwave, 25 years old, and it failed. And I was just so angry. And my wife says, not everything's made by sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, That's I, uh, I, I, make, I, I make the comment when I was in production all the time, you would, you would have people that would come across like sound guys or, or you know, singers or somebody that would be like, well, you know, I have a 58. I just, I just don't like the way it sounds. And I would always tell them, how long have you had that microphone? And they're like, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years. It's like, okay, let me pull out this one that's a year old and let's talk about the difference of you singing into that microphone and what it has done to the foam on that. Just yeah. because it still works doesn't mean it's at spec. Right. So, right. you know, let's let's check that out a little bit. And, you know, it's I'm guilty of the same thing. I have 58s that I've had that I bought when I was, you know, in high school and they right. still work. They sound right. different because I've sung into them and you know there's yeah, a lot you know, of things in that foam so right and, and the, diaph the diaphragm gets wet and it collects dust and there's mm -hmm. all kinds of things you know when you got something where i think uh, i once saw that calculated that 15 15 s and 58 diaphragms along with the voice coil equals the same weight as like three pennies i mean that's how lightweight they are so it doesn't take much dust to build up on that to actually change mm -hmm. the way that you know it, it works and sounds 
but you're right. The thing, you know, the things change. And some people say, well, I've got an old 58 and it sounds much better than a new 58. Well, you might, you might have gotten used to it, right? Mm-hmm. You, might, you might like that darker mm-hmm. sound if it was darker. Um, and, and things change. You know, it, it, a, a Fender Telecaster is a slab of wood. Some of them sound better than other ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. kind of a testament to, to how well those are made, though, is the fact that, you know, people people can complain that, you know, the, the thing that even the smallest, tiniest thing still functions. It's right. just not quite in spec anymore after 15 or 20 years, right. you know, for a yeah. $100 or a hundred and, you know, whatever dollar piece of gear. You yeah, know, it's it, just amazing. How many it, strings it, have you changed in that whole time? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's also amazing that that doesn't everyone in the world own a fifty-eight by now? <laughs> yes, that, that was that's always amazing to me too. Is how many they, they must just be driving them out by the truckload and burying them in the desert or something. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know? hey, look, look at that one. Look at one Felix's Felix's got. You know, yeah. Yeah. I you bet know, it still I, works though. Oh, it totally yeah. works. <laughs> yeah, and, and and that we expect we expect that because as I like to point out to people, this seems so obvious until you think about it. Mister Sure named his company his family name, right? And so he wanted anything that came out with his family name on it to be he wanted to be proud of it. Hmm. You know, and it wasn't he could have called it Universal Microphones, he could have called it Electro Voice, something. I'm not picking an Electro Voice, but the idea is that he could have called it something else but instead he put his company he put his family name on it and that meant a, that was a big deal to him and he was not about to let anything out there that wasn't of some quality that he could you know he would be could be proud that it was called sure so i think it was the beastie boys book that came out a few years ago that they have this rendering of their stage everything they were used on stage and there is a 58 on the side and everything has a number and you go and read on the side what what, what it is and the 58 was something along the lines of the one they got um and especially thinking of, of both punk and hip-hop how the 58 was a weapon to 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 express whatever <laughs> needed to be said at the moment yeah. um it's just the, the product keeps reinventing itself um We've got a, in the archive, we have a, a Roger Daltrey mic that, you know, he, Roger Daltrey is well known for like swinging the mics, right? Yeah. And uh, he'd never had one failed and he had this one. This one failed and he was not upset. He just wanted to know why. So he sent it back to us, you know, cave, cut the cable, sent the whole thing back to us. And we wanted to figure out why too. Well, we x-rayed the entire thing and it turned out the microphone was fine, but the cable, as it came out of the XLR connector had take a 180 degree turn and they had crimped it so much that the interconductors broke. So we sent him the X-ray and we sent him that and he was very happy. And, uh, I said, you know, I said, do you want us to send it back? And he goes, no, no, keep that. You know, would you like, would you like one of my microphones? I said, yeah, it's great. Good thing to show. So we kept it. And I said, I, I got to ask you this. Why do you, what started just swinging the microphone? Right. And, he, and I can't use all of his colorful language, so we'll 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 clean it up. He says, I, "Do we have uh, a rule about this, Wes?" That's all right. That's right. Just for, he goes, "Oh, it's, he says it's a freaking freaking Townsend." He says he plays these long solos, and when he's playing those long solos, a singer's got nothing to do on stage. I'm I'm bored, so I started to do this just to have something to do. It's just you know something when I had good eyesight, I could flick out the cigarette out of his mouth when I got really bored. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and you think about that. Those guys have been performing together for 50 some years. They got to be like an old married couple by now. Right. Oh yeah. That, yeah. that they love each other, but they just drive each other crazy. 
I think about that with a lot of those bands that have been together, like ZZ Top. I just watched the the ZZ Top documentary, a uh, little band from Texas the other day, and they've had all original members since day one. They've never stopped being for all these years. So, you know, you see them hang out together and you got to think in that moment, they're like, oh, I love being with you. And then like an hour later, they're like, I'm going to go on my bus and you can go on your bus. <laughs> you ever, you ever heard uh, Billy Gibbons? Uh, story about working with Mark Knopfler. Have you ever heard that story? No, I don't think oh, so. Oh, God, this is a great story. So Knopfler's working on Money for Nothing, and he wants to get the, like, the, the ZZ Top Billy Gibbons sound, right? So this is pre-internet or pre-email. So he calls up Gibbons, and, and he says, I want to sound like you. How do you do it? So Gibbons says, so I tell him all how this sound, what the amplifier settings were and everything, and the record comes out, and I said, hmm, he did a pretty good job considering I lied to him. <laughs> oh, Billy Gibbons is amazing. When you talk to him, he tells <laughs> stories that like you, you're like, I want to believe that this is real, but I don't think it is. But oh, God, he tells it so well. It's got to be real, right? <laughs> but, but, the, but that makes perfect sense. Why would he give up his secret of that sound, right? Yeah. Um, you know, guitar players that struggle to do that they're not going to tell someone else how to do it that's that's them yeah <laughs> man i saw him playing rhythm guitar for will and nelson a few years ago um i guess luke wilson luke nelson who usually plays with willie had a gig in hawaii doesn't make the gig mm -hmm. and billy was just sitting behind they didn't acknowledge that it was him not a single solo he just sat back there and played rhythm guitar and I thought it was the coolest. I was like, there's like, nobody's going to point out the fact that he has <laughs> him on stage. And Billy Gibbons? Yeah, yeah. I saw him. I went to the bathroom uh, in the backstage area and I see him walk in. I'm like, what is he doing here? I guess he's just watching the show. And then next thing I know, he's on stage from the first song to the last one. And nobody, it wasn't pointed out, nothing. Just another band member. <laughs> you know, really cool. I, I, can, I, can, I can appreciate that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guitar player and don't do all types of styles, but the stuff I love to do the best is I play rhythm guitar in big bands, you know, like Count Basie and Duke Ellington. And there's just so much fun sitting there putting down the quarter note. It's just great. You're building and a so, house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just, you know, you, 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 you know, there's no pressure. You're just sitting there making this, making it swing. And so I can, I can appreciate that. But playing rhythm guitar, no matter what type of rhythm guitar, it's just fun. Yeah, it's the it's the foundation, and the house falls down if there ain't no foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly. Drums exactly. and bass, man. You know, <laughs> Felix. I, I hate to say this because you know Felix is a bass player, and I don't want to give him any props at all. But you know, I, I always when I was doing sound or when I was in a band or whatever, you know, you can always point out. If there's a band with a good drummer and a good bass player, they're probably pretty good. If there's a band with a great guitar player and a great singer, but the drummer and bass player are terrible, that band's terrible. Not, there's yeah. just no <laughs> way it is any good. And that's just a fact. Without a foundation, the house falls down. Yeah. I was in a yeah. rehearsal years ago, my nose itched right before a lead came on. on <laughs> and I just, I was like, it's rehearsal. I just stopped playing and everything fell apart. And I was like, just so you guys remember. Yeah, 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 driving the bus here. Yeah, exactly. Every now, and then, I mean, we I haven't rehearsed for over a year now because of the whole COVID thing. But every now and then, I would I would miss a big band rehearsal, and I'd come back, and the drummer says, "Man, I really missed you." I said, "That's good," you know. <laughs> That's, is that what you play bass? Uh, no, I play I play uh, rhythm guitar, rhythm like you guitar. know, like like yeah, but but acoustic archtop rhythm guitar, like oh, Freddie wow. Green, like Freddie Green did in Count Basie band. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
and, that, and cool. it's and on the amplified, you know, that's high, awesome. high, high action, thick pick and loud 1938 Epiphone guitar. And it cuts right through. It's, nice. it's, it's really, it's really you fun. Miss it? Oh yeah. Hidden. I, my, uh, I'm, you know, my, my life outside of sure is performing. My, my wife's a, my wife and I are both really well, again, we'll talk about normal times. Right. Um, we're very active choral singers. In fact, we were actually a member of a choral group in England and we would go over there and we perform a couple of times a year. Uh, I play big band guitar. I do uh, pit work, you know, where you're doing like um, theater stuff, you know, re reading and so forth, pretty much all styles. Haven't done any of that for a, for a year. And man, I really miss it. Really miss it. So it'll be back, you know, just gotta be, gotta be patient. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a lot of musicians rushing to practice um, as, as we see the light yeah. at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, Felix, that's, that's one thing I, I found out. I'm very much an ad hoc musician. If I don't have a gig or a piece to learn, I don't pick up the guitar very often. You know, Same because, here. Mm -hmm. yeah, because I mean, you know, the, there's that pressure, right? I got, I got to learn this thing. I got to, I got to learn that and like that. And then, but the idea of just, you know, I'm going to sit down and play scales or whatever. That's boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is boring, right? <laughs> it, it is boring, but I, you know, I pick up the guitar these couple of times a week just to make sure I still can keep the fingers. My, my fingertips are as soft as they've ever been. That's what's going to be the hardest thing is just to get them back to, you know, so they don't hurt after I play for an hour or so. Bef yeah. Before we wrap up, yeah, this has been fun, guys. Thank you for asking it, me. It, 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 it has. I'm curious, yeah. uh, and I guess nobody can predict the future, but yeah. SM58 took a very long time to happen. Mm. SM7B almost got discontinued. Yeah. Do you think there is a product? And you don't have to say which one. Do you <laughs> think there is a chance of a product in the lineup that nobody's, that's been overlooked? And it, it could, yeah. boom, at some point. Yeah. Beta, beta 181. I think that's a sleeper. All right, I'm going to buy 10 and, and say, I'm putting them on. I think that's a sleep. That little that little lollipop microphone yeah, with so changeable great. heads. I think overheads. it's just it's so great on overheads. It's I just so think great that, on acoustic guitar. I think that's a sleeper. Yeah. Uh, the, the form factor is it sounds great. Um, I'm also a big fan, and this is done okay. This is another. Uh, I love the KSM 137. That's what mm -hmm. I, when I when I mic up my arch top, that's what I use, and uh, that's just a every guitar player I've recommended that to. That becomes their go to guitar microphone and the answer is always the same it sounds like my instrument it's such a neutral sounding thing i've used it recently on flute uh recently flute. as in before uh, yeah, yeah just just trying stuff out and i was yeah. like why not just put it as a secondary mic and I ended up using it um in yeah. sax as well ended up using it as a final uh yeah my sm86 yeah. is my or uh, yeah sm86 is my sleeper really? vocal mic that nobody knows about and it's it's killer it's such a great vocal mic i don't think i've ever used one i mean i know of it and so forth but i don't think i've ever used it for no one does everybody that i that i show it to they're like what is this it looks like a like a kind of smaller you know beta 87 mm -hmm. and then they hear it and they're like oh it doesn't have that presence peak that the beta does but it's super smooth and a condenser and People are like, why do I not know about this microphone? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the other thing, every company has uh, a reputation, if you will. And, and I think Sure's reputation is great. But it also it also kind of keeps you out of some markets like that. You know, the KSM-44, that's a wonderful microphone, but it's not a Neumann. 
you know, I, 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 you know, I've always thought that if you could get some of these people that have that prejudice to listen to these microphones really blindfolded, they might choose the KSM 44 more than they, they expect. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you a, a little story about this. So, you know, um, Neumann was an indep- independent company for years. And then Sennheiser bought them. I don't know how many years ago it was, but Neumann actually came to Shure and wanted us to buy them early on as well. And we thought about that for a long time, but we realized we couldn't because as soon as we did, the rumor mill would be out there. Oh, they're not as good anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, since Shure bought them, they changed this, they changed back. And you can't undo that. Right. You know, so you just realize that. I think it would have been it would have been a really good combination, but I think in that case, having sure attached to Neumann would have ruined the Neumann mystique, and you know, and there, therefore there are certain things you simply can't do because of that. Now I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, you know. But the oh, sure is reliable. Yeah, they're reliable, durable, man. Great live microphones and so forth. But put me in the studio, I got to have a Neumann, yeah, maybe, <laughs> or an SM7B. <laughs> right. Well, but, 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 that, but you're right. But the SM7B, I think, is one thing starting to change that. Mm-hmm. You know, people yeah. are starting to realize it. And maybe 10 years, 15 years, 20 years now, maybe we will be known as great studio mics and great road mics as well. That would be great if that, if that would happen. But well, know, that, price just... point, that price point, there is a, there is a perception um, depending who's buying it. If you're buying it, if you're buying, if you're a person in your garage trying to start a podcast, $400 microphone, that's an investment. If you're right. in a studio and they tell you, no, 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 we got this $400 mic, you go like, no, no, but, but I was ready to spend $3,000. You know? Well, check this one out too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and just look at all these weird, arcane little workshop microphones that are out there. And then and, and there's nothing wrong with them like that. Mm-hmm. But you see people, they buy it because of the way it looks. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that they're buying they're buying with their, you know, their eyes rather than their ears. <laughs> yeah. You know, happens all the time in our, our industry for sure. We had, uh, I'll tell you a short story. And you guys can wrap it up. I'll go on as long as you want, but I'll t- I got more stories, but this, <laughs> this was a, a local um, uh, FM station here in Chicago known for classical music. And they had used the SM 81 on air for their on air announcer mics for probably 30 years. Uh, and the, 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 the station has it's, it's uncompressed station. It's a very quiet station. It has a certain sound to it. So it was about five years ago. And the station manager at the time wanted to change the sound of the station to build up, you know, the uh, build up the audience, even though you can only build up classical music audience so much. So he wanted to change the SM7s and his staff was kind of grumbling. I said, I tell you what, you bring over, bring over four announcers. We'll, we'll put up six mics of your choice. You tell me what they want. We'll do tracks, and then I'm going to send you the tracks too, but they're going to be anonymous. All you're going to know is mic A, mic B, mic C, and so forth. So they brought they, – they did an uh, electric voice RE20, uh, an AKG414, SM7, SM81, like they've been using, KSM42 condenser, and I think a KSM353 ribbon. And did the announcers – did yeah – did the announcers, did the tracks, sent them to the tracks, took them about three weeks. <clears throat> they sent me all their votes. I tallied it. I called up the station manager. I said, you're going to be really happy. You don't have to spend a dime. Everybody chose the SM81. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but he was so convinced. Change it, you know, we got to change it to the SM7. And even he didn't vote for the SM7. 
seven. <laughs> but that, that's why it's really important to do this stuff blind so that you don't see what you're listening to. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you doing this. This is awesome. You Thank know, you for asking me. I can uh, we I could talk about this stuff forever. Felix, <laughs> before we came on, Felix was like, did we block out like three or four hours for you guys to talk, right? Because <laughs> he knows me. He knows. I just love this stuff. The history of audio is like one of those things that's just fascinating to me. Yeah, to me too. I mean, it, I cannot uh, promise we will not try to call you back. That's oh, that's okay. I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be happy to talk. Happy to talk to you. I love telling the stories. There's a lot of stories to tell. And, you know, it's for me, it's like it's like the best job in the world to get paid, to be able to, to do this, to research this stuff. Man, mm. dream job. Yeah, dream job. That's, that's awesome. why I, I'm not, you know, I have no plans of retirement. I'm, I'm at retirement age, but no plans to retire. In fact, Mrs. Sure gave me quick, we'll, we'll end up with uh, two quick Mrs. Sure stories. Um, I was, I can't remember what it was. This is probably, she died in 2016. It was on 2014, I think it was. And she came up to me one time. She says, Michael, I hope you don't think you ever think about retiring. Because I can tell you, my friends who have retired, they rust. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. And then it was about the last six weeks of her life, she, or last six months of her life, she didn't come into sure. She was just too ill and she was at home, still running the company, but she was at home. And I hadn't heard from her for a while. And one day, uh, it turned out to be about two weeks before she died. <clears throat> The phone rings. I see it's her number. I pick it up. It's her secretary. Secretary says, uh, Michael, you know, Mrs. Sure wants to talk to you. And I hadn't talked to her for a while. And so she, she gets on the phone and she's on oxygen. And I can tell that she's very weak. And she says, yeah, she says, you know, I'm not going to be with us. I'm not going to be here much longer. And I want you to know that I cannot imagine the company without you. And when I'm gone, it's up to you to continue our history. Will you do that? Wow. Well, now you have to. And now I have to. <laughs> yeah. There's, now there's I have no to. way. Now you can't get out of it. <laughs> so, so doing, so doing things like this will help. You know, um, my 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 job description was and still is own sure history and build roads to it. So today we built another road, yeah. uh, and it's just way fun. And that's also why I do the weekly tech tips. I'm trying to document all these stories. You know that are out there so that, so, you know, whenever I do retire or die in the saddle, those things won't go away. Awesome. Well, again, just a wealth of information <laughs> we could talk forever, but we gotta, we, we gotta wrap this up. But like Felix said, you know, we might, uh, we might do a part two at some point. I mean, he didn't about... have a beer on this, so we still, <laughs> yeah, we gotta yeah. come back. We, I mean, we didn't even talk about, we usually start these things off with like what beers we're having and what we're drinking, but we got well, right into it. Which is awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm going to go have. Uh, you've ever heard of a, there's a brewery in Maine called Allagash. I don't know if you've ever heard of them or not, <clears throat> but they make a wonderful ale and they age it in bourbon barrels. And it is a killer beer. And that's nice. what I'm going to have when we're done here. I always do the the local beer thing. And I'm doing the 903 Luck of the Sasquatch, which is a <laughs> Irish cream uh, flavored wow. ale. Uh, wow. Stout, actually. An Irish cream flavored stout. And it's wow. fantastic. Man. So. Highly recommend. Don't, don't drink a six pack of that. You'll be sick all night. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> no. But it, it's a nice afternoon. Yeah, I can appreciate Apartif. that. Apartif. <laughs> well, please, please ask me again. I enjoyed this. You guys, you know, you're good listeners and you ask me great questions, which, uh, you know, we got more stories if you want them. Yeah, awesome. we, we might have you back and you can you can tell us all about your your Frank Sinatra stories. 
Oh yeah, that's a whole right. podcast. That's a right. whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> what? what, what is that? Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Michael.